RadioInfluence.com You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy to have you back for this thing we call a podcast. Got a great guest this week. I'm looking forward to talking to him. And uh, he's one of the funniest guys in the business and um, and I'm sure has some stories to tell. And we're going to be... Uh, Going to be looking forward to hearing those stories. Uh, Ken Anderson, uh, Mr. Anderson, Mr. Kennedy. Uh, Going to welcome him on sitting ringside, and um, sure he'll be entertaining. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about, and I don't want to sound preachy, uh, and it's not not even about wrestling. Um, I know recently uh, Anthony Bourdain. For those of you who don't know, he is a celebrity chef. He uh, wrote. Kitchen Confidential book and has shows on different networks where he goes around and tastes food and drinks beer and smokes weed sometimes I think and and uh, gets the flavor of, of of the entire scenario and kind of a favorite of mine and um, he uh, recently took his own life and nobody saw it coming and I've talked to Daphne uh, and Allie uh, who have been brave enough to come on this podcast and other media platforms and talk about their battles with anxiety and depression and, and, uh, panic attacks. Um, I've been very open in those conversations that I've dealt with anxiety and panic attacks, uh, pretty much my whole adult life. Uh, certainly interesting. in <laughs> when you're traveling the world as a, as a ring announcer, uh, and you have to make the next town sometimes, uh, it could provide a challenge, but you know, you always, I always seemed to find a way to push through and never really felt comfortable talking about it until Daphne and then Allie were able to, uh, were, were brave enough to talk about their struggles. And I figured if they could talk about their struggles and, you know, I could be open about mine. If it helps one person, then it's worth it. Uh, so, you know, you see a guy like Anthony Bourdain, you see a guy, uh, you know, so many people, there was a, a, a fashion, uh, billionaire who earlier than the week who who committed suicide as well in new york city and, and you just don't know what's going through people's minds uh everything looks okay but you know i like to say and and it's i don't say it proudly but it, it's a fact the mind is a powerful powerful tool and not always in a good way uh can play tricks on you it can make you think you're having a heart attack it can make you think that uh uh you know you're losing your mind it can make you think that nobody cares about you um and uh, you see a guy like Anthony Bourdain who had everything going, uh, a, 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 an 11-year-old daughter, uh, a great career, uh, girlfriend that uh, apparently he was uh, madly in love with, uh, you know, millions of dollars, although money doesn't buy happiness. And, it, 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 and you see him and, and he's, he's gone in a moment uh, by his own volition and, and just uh, it really had an impact on me thinking about, you know, what could have been if I didn't have the support system that I had. Uh, my dad's a psychologist and I've always had that support system and, uh, my wife and, 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 uh, my parents to lean back on, to lean on in time. And 
it made me think of a story that I hadn't thought about in a while, uh, but I, I thought I'd tell it, and uh, maybe you could then understand how strong the mind could play games with you. Uh, back in around uh, 87, uh, myself, I think I was 20 years old at the time, and a friend of mine uh, had tickets and airplane tickets and hotel reservations to go to Pontiac, Michigan to go see WrestleMania three. Uh, you know, we've talked about, uh, we've had Kevin Sullivan and, and Ted DiBiase come on and talk Andre stories and talked about, uh, that match. And, uh, you know, we've had Ricky steamboat come on and talk about, you know, the classic match with him and, and, uh, Randy macho man, savage. And I, I, I was supposed to be there. Uh, and, uh, I, I always kind of wondered when they had that 93,063 people, if they counted me those two tickets. Cause, uh, about two days before I had a, a massive, massive panic attack and I couldn't go. I, I ended up watching it from a friend's house on pay-per-view and feel, by the way, at that point, two days later, feeling totally almost a hundred percent better thinking to myself, I could, I was supposed to be there, but my mind, my brain, my anxiety would not let me get on a plane and, and go to this thing I had been looking forward to as maybe one of the highlights of my life at that point to be able to go to, you know, you know, questionably, unquestionably the biggest wrestling card, you know, and, um, you know, Hulk versus Andre. And, you know, all these years later, I'm still here. I'm still plugging away. I, I still get a tinge of anxiety and sometimes even worse. And, uh, and, you know, we live with it, but, um, it just goes to show you that, you know, you, you know, we come on this program each and every, this podcast each and every week, and we try to tell stories, and I try to tell, you know, let show gratitude for the, the fact that I got to live my dream and continue living my dream. And you don't know what's going on in, in, in people's minds and in people's hearts. So um, if there's anybody out there that is going through anything similar, uh <laughs> If, if if feel free to reach out to me, uh, you could PM me on Twitter. Uh, if uh, if I haven't followed you, this uh, hit me up, and I'm I'm happy to follow you. Uh, you could uh, you could uh, send me a email, David Penzer at radioinfluence.com. David Penzer at radioinfluence.com. I've been there all my life, at different parts of my life. During the highlights of my life, there's been lowlights of my life. Uh, but I plugged along because I had that support system and some, some people don't have it. I guess Anthony Bourdain didn't have that support system. Uh, so many other, you know, uh, uh, the actor I'm, I'm, I'm drawing up. Robin Williams didn't have that support system. He, he had everything else in the world, but he didn't have that support system. And there's so many others. So, uh, if I could be of help to anybody, if that story, uh, could be of help to anybody, um, uh, then I'm happy to be a small uh, bit of assistance in somebody's life. And, uh, and if not, I thank you for indulging me for about 10 minutes just to uh, speak from the heart. Uh, uh, because the, the fact is that, that, that whatever those people were thinking at the time, Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, uh, and the list goes on and on and the annals of history, no matter what those people were thinking at the time, I promise you, that with medication and with therapy and, and with support, you can feel better. And the thing is, at the time, you don't think you ever will. Uh, I've, I've, I've fought this battle my whole life. And 
25 years later, there's, there's times that I think to myself, I'm never going to feel right again. And I know I'm going to because I can look back at WrestleMania 3 and say I couldn't get on a plane because uh, I had such bad panic and anxiety. But two days later, I was sitting there watching it on pay-per-view at a friend's house and uh, and feeling a lot better. So uh, so it, it, it there is a light at the end of the rainbow, trust me. Uh, but it doesn't feel like it at the time. And somebody who's never experienced it can't understand it. And I get it. Uh, and somebody who has experienced it will totally understand what I'm saying. It's like speaking a different language. Uh, for those of you who might speak that language or might have spoken that language, uh, you know, again, anything I could do to help, uh, if, if I can't help, reach out to a friend or family member uh, or anybody that, uh, that could just talk you down because I promise you it will get better. It's not easy and it's painful, but it will, it will be, get better over time. Uh, and then it might get bad again, but it will get better over time. Uh, life is precious. Uh, you, I truly believe you only live once. So that's my piece. I've said it. I uh, apologize if, uh, for those who come to listen to a wrestling podcast, but uh, I thought it was important to say from the heart uh, and something that I wanted to get off my chest. And again, if it could help one person, uh, you know, uh, then, then it was worth every damn moment and or any embarrassment or you know insight into my personal life that uh i just showed so uh we're gonna talk uh wrestling obviously we're gonna bring on ken anderson here in a minute we're gonna uh change the mood around to a positive mood do want to say i saw cm punk's uh match and uh i do give him credit for going out and doing something at the age of 38 39 that most people do their whole lives uh, and and uh, give them credit for trying it. And I, I even give them more credit for going back and doing it again after it uh, didn't go very well the first time. Uh, but I think at this point, if I'm CM Punk, considering I have uh, all the money that I need, uh, I think uh, it's probably time to uh, put that dream aside and say I tried it and it didn't work, uh, but at least I tried. So. Uh, Interested in your thoughts on the CM Punk uh, fight? He did not look very well. Uh, I didn't think he could look worse than the first one. Uh, he looked worse than the first one. It was interesting trying to explain to the... I was watching with some friends who aren't wrestling fans or even UFC fans. They just happened to be in the sports bar. And um, interesting trying to explain to them how the guy in the first fight on the pay-per-view who's getting his butt kicked for the most of it made it half a million dollars, but the guy that beat him and like the guy in the next match, in the next match, maybe made five or ten thousand dollars. So that uh, was an interesting conversation to have. But uh, but yeah, it's about uh, it's about getting buys. And I specifically got out of my house and drove to the sports bar and bought a couple drinks uh, specifically to see that fight. And it's not I'm not a UFC regular, so I think the last time I went and did that was the last CM Punk fight. So that's why uh, they paid him that kind of money. And uh, hopefully they made their money back. And hopefully CM Punk will save it and move on to the next chapter in his life. I don't know him, uh, but I do wish him well. So uh, once again, real quickly, uh, at David Penzer on Twitter, all one word, at Penzer Ringside, David Penzer at RadioInfluence.com. I love interacting with you guys. Uh, I put up right before this interview about two hours ago, uh, Questions for Ken Anderson, Ken Anderson, go. 
and uh, got a lot of great questions, uh, some that I'm, many that I'm using uh, in this next segment when we welcome Mr. Anderson uh, to sitting ringside. So uh, appreciate the interaction, and, uh, and it's always fun to interact with you guys. And thank you so much for downloading, for uh, subscribing, for listening, and for uh, passing on the good word to your friends and family, other wrestling fans who might enjoy what we're doing out here. And with that, we welcome former WWE TNA superstar, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mr. Ken Anderson. Anderson! Ladies and gentlemen, this week on City Ringside, want to welcome actually one of the funniest guys I've ever been around in the business, and uh, he uh, is a proud asshole as well. And it, you don't mind me saying that, do you, sir? I love the terms of endearment. <laughs> there you go. Uh, former WWE TNA uh, superstar, uh, Ken Anderson. Welcome to City Ringside. Pleasure to have you. Uh, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Hey, thank you. First of all, um, thank you for your service. I saw your former military when I never knew that when uh, we, so we worked together a little bit in TNA. I never knew that, but thank you for your, oh. your service. Uh, oh, thank you. I, yeah. I saw that you were a serviceman and, and, uh, uh, thank you for keeping us safe while jabronis like me are able to have a podcast. Um, <laughs> so, um, curious about the circumstances that led you to become a wrestler. I saw some stuff going back to where uh, you were a big fan, and then you got punished and couldn't watch wrestling for a while, and and then mm-hmm. you got back into it after your time in the service. But uh, when when was it that you decided, hey, this is something I could do, and 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 went out and 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 found a teacher and and a school i was at a friend's house one night and i don't know i i just gone through a breakup or something like that so we were just kind of like he said come on over we'll have some beers we'll play some cards just chit chat and he had always talked about wrestling and i kind of always gave him a hard time about it like oh you watch that crap a bunch of guys <laughs> rolling around with each other wearing tights and you know that kind of stuff and um <clears throat> he just kept kept persisting and kept persisting. And, uh, and, you know, it, there was a huge group of friends that we hung out with that all watched wrestling. I just never did. And then that one night he said, man, there's this guy that's really taking, taking the wrestling world by storm and just, just watch him. Just please watch him. So, all right, whatever. And I watched and this, I saw that I heard this glass break and this bald headed guy came running out to driving out to the ring in a pickup truck. And he had a six pack of beer in his lap and was yelling at the camera guy. And just like, just his swagger really roped me in. And I started watching every week just to see what he would do. And then also my roommates at the time were big wrestling fans. So it was just kind of like, I fell into it. And it's funny because like, they had been wrestling fans for so long. And now here I was, I was fresh. I was brand new. Like this was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And that's, I feel like that's all I talked about. That's all that was on my mind was what is Austin going to do next week? And, um, and then I, it, it became, it was so hot at the time that. You and know, you and 6 million other people. Totally. Yeah. And like raw was killing Monday night football in the ratings and, it was just, it was nuts. But the one thing that was different about wrestling back then was it was just one or two shows. You know, it was like Monday Night Raw and Nitro. And that's it. 
And um, so you you had seven days to just sit and wait and, and wonder. Um, it was kind of supply and demand thing, I think. Sure. And then uh, I, I was at a restaurant. I was at a party and a friend of mine that I had grown up with said something to the effect that like their mother knew of somebody or worked with somebody that had gone to a wrestling school. And I just never thought about it. I was like, I've never, I, it never dawned on me. Like how do these people get to be in this line of work? And I went home that night and I got on the internet. It was like AOL, AOL.com or something like that. You know? Yeah. And Google. I remember Google existed. And I looked up wrestling schools and I remember thinking like, I'm probably going to have to go to a big city. I'm sure that they don't have wrestling schools just in across America. I didn't realize that that is in case, you know, that is in fact <laughs> the case. And, um, I happened to reach out to a guy named rock and Randy, Randy Ricci. Um, I know Randy. And, yeah. And Randy, I sent him a met a message. I said, Hey man, I'm from two rivers, Wisconsin. I really would like to, I really would like an opportunity. And then he, I think he realized that I lived so close to Green Bay that he put me in touch with a friend of his, Mike, Mike Krause, Mike Mercury, who was just starting a wrestling school. And I ended up being Mike's first student ever. So, um, that's a hard bar to follow actually. Yeah. (laughs) But I, you know, I just, I started going to wrestling school. I didn't really know anything about the history of the business. I remember having a conversation with Mike on the phone for the first time. And he was like, you know, Ric Flair. And I was like, yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of him, but I don't really know who he is. But I, I'm I was almost ashamed to admit that today, but that, that was just the case. I just didn't follow wrestling. And then when I got in and started training, I just, I kept, I made sure that I went back and I did my homework and I watched and got a hold of, of as much tape as I possibly could and just, you know, caught up on the history of the business. You know, it's funny. There's a key to people that we talk to here on City Ringside that are successful. And uh, the common theme you hear is that they, uh, you know, really took uh, everything they could find from the history of wrestling and what was going on at the time they were breaking in and sort of immersed themselves with it. And, and I think... That, that that's what helps make people successful in a business like this. You know, I never put two and two together, but your swagger when you walk out is sort of similar to the Stone Cold swagger. Is that on purpose? It's not. I, I promise you it's not on purpose, but I think it's just like, I think that the reason that I was so drawn to him was because there were some similarities in our character. Like, you know, when I get into a fight with somebody, when I would get into a fight or an argument with somebody, that's kind of the way that I acted, I guess. So it's, it's, I promise it's not intentional. I'm not trying to steal or copy what, what Steve is doing. It's just like, I think there's some similarities in our actual um, personalities. So I unearthed an article in WWF magazine, I guess, that says that you went to train in Memphis in 2003. I hadn't seen that anywhere else, but it is from WWF magazine. Uh, is that true? And if, if so, tell me about that uh, adventure. No, no, I don't. I, I, I never went to Memphis before. Before yeah. I got to WWE, it even, I, it even it even talks about a girl quitting school, going with you, and uh, 
uh, somebody was using poetic license, I think, because I had always seen that you started in 2005 in OVW. And, and so, you know, I was just cross-checking some research on, 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 and I saw the article and, uh, and yeah, huh. they, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I didn't, my, my ex-wife quit her job and quit school and moved to Louisville with me when I got signed by the WWE, but it wasn't Memphis. Louisville, Memphis. And it says 2003. That's crazy. Um, so you went to OVW and apparently according to, uh, to history, uh, Jim Cornette, who was a teacher at the time, was not a big fan. What was the issue, if any? Or you just, he just didn't see so, anything there? No, no. So I, I, I feel that that's like a just a misunderstanding by people. When I, I said that Jim didn't really see anything in me. I don't think it was like screw Ken Anderson. This guy, I don't like this guy. It was just there were so many people that were under contract with WWE at the time. You know, there's 50 to 60 people at OVW all trying to make a man for themselves, all trying to be seen. And it was, I just, I think when I went out there and wrestled and got an opportunity to wrestle in front of Jim, I didn't really show him anything. I was still trying to figure it out myself. So I don't think, sure. you know, I, I certainly didn't mean that like there was heat between Jim Cornette and I or that he didn't like me. It was just, you know, he's got, 60 people vying for his attention and I didn't do a good enough job of actually getting that attention. So that's all it was. And, and actually right before he, he left OVW, he did start to see something. in me. I remember he put me out, he, I dyed my hair blonde. I went back to blonde cause I had been blonde on the Indies. And then when I got signed, I, I went back to my natural hair color and then Steve Kern came down to the, the training center one time. And he said like, look, you need to do something to stand out to people. They said, I, I don't care what it is, but when you walk into a room, if you walk into a restaurant, you sit down, people in that restaurant should look, should be able to look over it. You can go like, I don't know what that guy does, but he does something. He's somebody, you know? And I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. So I dyed my goatee blonde. I dyed my hair blonde. And Jim was actually upset with me and was like, so if you want to dye your hair blonde, I'll put you, I'll put all the blondes together. Like, <laughs> put me with Hank Toland and, uh, and uh, I think Melissa Coates and uh, Chad Wicks. We, they put us all together as the blonde bombers. And I went out and I cut a promo. And I remember I just let loose on this promo. And I came back and he was like, where's that guy? So, there you go. And then and like, he was kind of letting me run with that. And then two weeks later, he got fired. Um, so, so Heyman came in, Paul Heyman, and it seems like you guys uh, really hit it off, and he was a big supporter. Uh, what, why'd you guys hit it off so well? He just saw the potential in you that Cornette was starting to see at the very end. So, I, I first met Paul when I was coming in doing tryouts for WWE, and I remember there was a time where there was a talent meeting or something like that going on, and all of the talent and most of the agents were in that office meeting and the only people that were ringside were the local talent that was there to just be local guys, enhancement talent. And Paul Heyman and Jim Ross were sitting ringside, just chit-chatting, kind of watching. And I got in the ring and I got, you know, I got a chance to tag in. We were doing a tag drill or something like that where 
five guys on one side, five guys on the other side. And you just tag in, tag out, do some stuff. And I remember after I got, I tagged out, Paul said, come here for a second. And I went over to him and he's like, who trained you? And I said, well, I got trained by two guys in Green Bay, Mike Mercury and Eric Hammers. And then I got, I went over to uh, get polished up by Brad Rangins. I went to Brad Rangins school for six months. And then, you know, Brad trained Brock. So Brad knew Paul, Paul knew Brad. And so that was sort of like, I could see the light bulb go on. And he was like, well, I'm going to keep my eye out on you. And he did. From that day forward, like every time I would run into him, he would ask me, you know, he seemed to actually know and take an interest in who I was and how I was doing. And then I guess, you know, when, when I was at OVW for that first six months, Paul would come down every two months or so and would do two days of promo work with us. We would go into a room, we would cut a promo with Paul and the camera, and then he would critique us and say like, here's how you can make it better. Here's what I would change. And then you were to go home that night, kind of rework it, and then come back and cut it again to the camera. And I remember I used to do that, and I used to come back the second day, and I would cut the promo for the most part, and Paul would go, okay, thank you. And that was it. <laughs> so, and I remember thinking, like, this guy thinks I suck, like, he hates me. <laughs> and, uh, and it turned out that he actually was, he was, like, happy with that. And when he came down, when he got hired and, you know, after Jim Cornette left, and he came down to take over OVW, he just pulled me aside and said, I've been a fan of yours since I met you when I first asked you who trained you. And he said, I've been watching you and said, you're the next guy out of here. I'm going to do so much stuff with you on TV, so much stuff with you here that they're going to have to take a look at you. And when they do, they're going to pull you up. And five weeks later, I was on TV for WWE. So first time in the history of the business where somebody made a promise like that and actually followed through with it. <laughs> it happens once in a while, man. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, you know, and that was the thing. Like, I was always told to believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. You know, people... I, from the time that I got into the business 18, 19 years ago, every promoter, hey, we're getting a TV show. We're getting, we're going to be on TV. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. It just never happened. So you get called to the, the, the WWE and uh, the intro really made you stand out. And I know uh, looking at, at your history that you used to do something similar when you were announcing like football games in high school. But whose idea was that to incorporate that into your wrestling entrance so to speak was that totally your idea was that Heyman's idea a combination Vince's idea so it was a little of both Heyman was the one that said hey tonight I want you to go out there and cut the ring announcer off this is like maybe the third or fourth week that Paul was at TV that might have been the second week that he was at TV so tonight I want you to go out there and you're going to cut uh, Dean Hill off because Dean Hill was the, the ring announcer cut him off right. and just berate him berate him Pair him a new one, and then, and then you do your own introduction, and then he sort of like went through the from Green Bay, Wisconsin. You know, he did the whole thing, and um, and so I, I went out and I cut the promo, and then right at the tail end when I said my last name, I remembered back to when I was in high school how I used to do last name twice, and I just threw it out there, and when I came back to the locker room, everybody was like, "That was awesome when you said your last name twice." And, you know, people started doing it. And I think 
imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Like when the boys start to do your stuff, start to do your shtick, you know that it's truly working. That something's something's happening. That's getting over, and that's what happened. Speaking speaking of boys, forget about the wrestlers. My kids, when they're like uh, ten and twelve, I, we would ride in a car together, and uh, and you know they would back and forth with the. Uh, with your intro it was uh you know everybody was do was doing it it was it was great stuff but uh i'm, not to... I'm sorry i'm sorry for that <laughs> <laughs> no no it was it was uh it was uh, it was great stuff man uh you know and and i get it's I get still probably sometimes pro- i get people that come up with their young younger kids well, not so much anymore but like when i was doing the asshole thing at dna um i would get parents that would come up to me and was like five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid, you know, like, tell him, tell him what you are. Oh, I'm an asshole. <laughs> oh, I just, it was like my version of the suck it thing, you know, that little kids were doing to their teachers and stuff yeah. like that. I, I turned into, that, I was that, I was that guy. <laughs> that, that was actually one of my favorite TNA gimmicks ever, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. So, they changed the name from Anderson to, to Mr. Kennedy, Ken Kennedy. Uh, is it true that that was based on Vince's middle name, or is that folklore? No, it, it was. Um, that was the suggestion that Paul Heyman came up with. Paul, when I, I called Paul immediately when he, they wanted to change my name. I said, hey, man, they want me to change my name. What do I do? And then he just started, okay, let's, we, we sat on the phone for 30, 45 minutes just throwing names out, just throwing ideas out. And, you know, he was like, you have to, you have to pick something that's near and dear to Vince's heart. And, um, you know, something that will unconsciously, subconsciously target his heartstrings a little bit when he hears it. And then we just, he was throwing out names of it, like his dog's names and <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, well, you know, I had that, I had that KK, the backwards K logo, because I was Kamikaze Ken on the Indies. And I sort of wanted to keep that as, and, as tribute or homage to my, my, upbringing in my roots and he was like just throwing out k names and finally he's kennedy ken kennedy is vince's middle name he'll love it <laughs> and um so yeah and then when vince we were all sitting in a room i remember it was me vince stephanie hunter kevin dunn all kind of sitting around johnny ace and uh, nothing's changed you know, he, it was a, it was a hell of a meeting. It was a hell of a meeting. It was like an hour long. And they, I mean, it was uh we were, I remember we were just sitting on folding chairs in a circle, just talking to each other. And he was asking me like, you know, what's your background? Uh, are you, do you do drugs? Uh, and, you know, do you drink a lot? Do you do this? What kind of person are you? Um, and then he, he asked, well, what, what about the, did you come up with the name? And I said, to be honest with you, I really, really like my real name, Anderson. And he said, look, I don't want for people to think that you are related to the Andersons, the famous Andersons of the business. Right. And I think in his head, he didn't know at that point if I was going to be a success or a failure. Because we've seen people come and go throughout the history of the business. And some people look like they're going to do really well. And then they just they're complete flops, right? So I think he didn't want me to potentially tarnish the name of Arn and Oli. Um, but at the same time he said I want you to stand out on your own I want you I don't want people to think that like you got here through nepotism 
So I was like, okay, well, I, you know, at the end of the day, you can call me Mr. Dickhead if you want to. Like, I'm just happy. To, <laughs> I'm happy to be working here. But sure. And then I, and then I threw up the Kennedy name, and he just kind of smirked and he said, "Do you like it?" And I said, "Yes." And he looked over at Kevin Dunn and said, "Make sure it's on his Titantron when he comes out tonight." So well, there you go. Hey, true or false? Was there ever a plan that you were going to be Vince's son? I, I, I asked, uh, uh, I went on uh, Twitter and asked for questions from uh, Twitterverse, and that was the yeah. biggest question. Uh, so that true. was true. This is true. This is true. Yep. I, um, so what I happened? Remember, I remember the night that Vince blew himself up in the limousine was when they first approached me. I think Stephanie came up. She's like, you know, we have this really great idea for you, but I want Vince to tell you himself. And then. And then, like, the next week on TV, he did. He pulled me into a room, and we talked about it. We talked about how it was going to go down and how it was going to be, like, you know, weeks and weeks of him doing paternity tests and, you know, the big slow reveal. And so we started doing that. We started doing all the – I remember I did – I cut a promo one time, and it was it – was, Vince, Vince and I bumped into each other backstage, and then we said something, exchanged some words, and then as I walked off, I did the Vince, the Vince walk, you know, like stuff like that. <laughs> I remember that actually. Now that you said, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so there was just, you know, little stuff like that. And then unfortunately I got into a little bit of trouble and that was taken away. So, you know, it's now, oh, now wow. that, that kind of stuff to me is I'm able to hopefully pass on to my students the sure. missteps that I made in the business. And there were some big ones um, that I take full responsibility for. And hopefully they don't have to make those same mistakes. It's like having kids. I mean, I, I have two kids. I want to be able to hopefully be honest with them someday and tell them all the mistakes that I made. And please don't, you don't have to do this because I already made it for you. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, Tell me about your feud with Undertaker. Uh, is there any pressure for you when you're performing with like the locker room leader of the WWE? I, surprisingly, I never felt an overwhelming sense of um, pressure. I, it was just to me, I don't know. This sounds crazy because, you know, and now I'm able to look back on it. But at the time, it was just, I was just doing my job. I was just going to work and I have to love my job and I felt confident in my job. I, I felt like I did a good job. Um, but I remember Taker first coming up to me and this was right after I worked Batista at the Great American Bash. And I had gotten busted open hard way twice during the match and I was pouring buckets of blood out of my head. And I just kept going, finished the match. Like I think anyone would have done. I got all this praise from people in the back. Like, yeah, you stuck through it. You did it. You didn't, you know, you didn't win out. I don't think there's anybody in that locker room at the time who would have wimped out. They would have kept going. And that's just what we do. But it just sure. happened to, it just happened to happen to me. And, um, so then I was able to reap the benefits. And I remember not only was did that happen, but I think the match was a decent enough match where Taker pulled me aside and he said, Hey man, I watched your match with Batista. Because I loved it, and he said, "I want to work with you." He said, "I'm going to go talk to Vince, 
and see if uh, we can't do business together because I think we should make some money together. And then the very next week, this is the second time in my life where somebody actually followed through on what they said they were going to do. The next week, he came up to me and he said, did you hear what we're doing? And I said, no. And he said, well, he said, we're going to start a feud next week. And it's going to uh, it's going to carry us for at least three pay-per-views. We're going to get three pay-per-views out of it at least. And it turned out like we ended up working each other for the better part of a year or more. It was some variation of Kane, Taker, me, MVP, and Batista. So it was, uh, I remember the first time I worked with Taker, Oklahoma City, I believe. And it was just a dark match or just, just a house show. Right. And in the locker room, I said, what do you want to do? And he said, we'll figure it out out there. Just listen to me. I literally <laughs> didn't, didn't talk to him even for a minute. There was nothing called in the locker room. And I can I can't explain to you the overwhelming sense of relief that that brought me because I knew that I was in there with such a pro. All I had to do was do my stuff and do it well and listen to him. Sure. And, and that's what I did. Like I remember being in the corner and he was like, kick me twice. I kicked him twice. Punch me once. I punched him once. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. And and then the next night, he was he was happy with our outing. And then the next night, he said, all right, I'm going to let you call some stuff, too. And then he let me call a spot or two. And then he sort of, we sort of, uh, you know, I earned his trust like that. And then, and then we were away to the race. That's awesome. So yeah. WrestleMania three, you win the Money in the Bank ladder match. I believe that was correct me if I'm wrong. That was your only WrestleMania. Uh, how was it? Uh, was it? I oh no, you've done. You, okay, was that your I first WrestleMania? Twenty three was my first WrestleMania, and then twenty four, um, I also wrestled the Money in the Bank ladder match. That's the one Punk won, and then, um, and then. I had actually been to 22, but I was injured at the time. And I was also at uh, 25 in Houston, and I was injured at the time, I believe, also. So, Look at, at Looking back, four, uh, go ahead. Well, I, I was at four WrestleManias, but I only performed in two of them. And, and, and is that something that, uh, you know, some, some people say, you know, it's, it was the highlight of my career, and some people say, you know, you'd be surprised. Some people say it was just, you know, another pay-per-view. What, how, how was it to you when you went out at, at WrestleMania 23 in front of all those fans uh, and, and won the, the, the briefcase? It was definitely a highlight of my career. I mean, I, it was such a cool feeling. Not only just, you know, in the back, putting the match together with eight other top guys, you know, top talent in the business. And having management say, like, you're the guy that we're going to go with this year was an honor. Um, but, and, and, but I will say that on the day when the match actually occurred, I walked through that curtain, you know, 80-some thousand people, 83,000, I think, was the number. And it just looked like a very full 10,000-seat arena. It didn't look like what I expected it to look like this giant sea of people. So I wrestled the match and 
you know, at the time too, you're wrestling so often and you're wrestling with such good talent that you, you're just sort of on autopilot. You just do it. You don't think about what, what's going on in the gravity situation. And then, and then I got back to the locker room. I showered up and I went up into the luxury boxes because that's where they had all the family members and stuff. And that's when I looked out and saw this little tiny ring in this giant sea of people. And that's when it hit me. Like I just did that. That was, you know, that was crazy. <clears throat> now, did you lose the case to edge because you were injured or did you get injured in the match where you lost the case to edge? I was, it wasn't clear. No, I got injured. And then, so this is interesting. I was in some sort of like a six man or eight man tag, real easy match that we had in, I think it was Poughkeepsie. <clears throat> and, Batista just pulled me out of the corner and gave me like a short clothesline and I landed just right so that I felt something pop in my triceps and I roll out to the ring and I remember like standing there looking at my triceps as it swelled up immediately and Finley was standing there and he goes that doesn't look good and then by the time I got to the locker room my hand was already turning black and blue you know usually like Deep bruises, big bruises take days to sort of surface. This was like immediate. It was already starting to turn colors. And I ended up going to Erie, Pennsylvania with Hornswoggle. And I got an MRI. And the next day, Stephanie called me. I was in my hotel room. They just told me to go to the hotel and just sit there and wait. I'm sitting in my hotel room waiting. Stephanie calls me and she says, can you tore your triceps off the bone? We're going to have to go for seven to eight months with rehab and everything. But here's the thing. And, and the thing, the reason why they were going to put the title on me in the first place, I was going to cash in that money in the bank briefcase the following week. Like literally oh. two, or three days, two days later, I was going to cash in that briefcase and become the world heavyweight champion. And she said, Here's the, and the reason was because Taker had torn his biceps. So Taker needed to have surgery. Taker was a champ. So they were going to have him do a cage match against Mark Henry, and then Mark Henry was going to beat him, but Taker was going to come out on top just, just so much, and then somebody was going to do a run-in and beat Taker up a little bit more, and then, boom, my music was going to hit. I was going to go and catch the briefcase, and basically, you know, mic check, one, two, three. That was it. Right. But she said, here's the thing. We still need to get that title off the taker because he's still injured. So what we're going to do is Vince's Jets coming to pick you up. We're going to fly you to Penn State. Edge is going to challenge you for the briefcase. And then Edge is going to go on and do what you were supposed to do tomorrow. And I'm like, what do you say? Like, in, my, in my mind, I was like, well, but I have, I have a year to cash this thing in. You know, like, I don't <laughs> have to get, I'm only going to be gone for seven, eight months. But at the time, I was like, Business is business. We'll figure out some other way. When I come back, I'll just, you know, I'll work my way back in. And so that's what happened. I went. I remember I couldn't even move my arm. They taped me up from my wrist all the way up to my elbow, past my elbow. And I went out. Edge jumped me before the bell, threw me in the ring, feared me one, two, three. And, uh, and then he went on and, and beat Taker for the title. The next day, I flew down to Birmingham, Alabama. And Dr. Andrews grabbed my triceps. He was like, just palpating it, you know, just like feeling it. And he said, that doesn't feel like a tear to me. 
And I, oh. I, I said, excuse me? He says, I, I don't feel a tear in there at all. And you can tell when something's torn. That doesn't feel like a tear to me. But they couldn't find the MRI, which was unfortunate because I hate doing MRI. I'm super claustrophobic when it comes to little, little tight chambers like that. So they made me do another MRI. And sure enough, it was just a large bruise, basically. It was just, I oh. So the doctor in Erie, Pennsylvania, misread, misdiagnosed that tear. That completely changed, you know, the course of my history, at least. So, yeah, that was, that was fun. <laughs> but yeah, I ended up, I was out for a month, and then I was back. Oh, oh my, my goodness gracious. Down. That hurts. But the interesting so thing we had is a, I've, I've noticed I have a propensity to deep bruising. I don't know what it is, but like I've had it a couple different times in my life where somebody will, I'll get hit in the wrong place and I will just swell up. I remember one time a guy gave me a kitchen sink, like a knee to the stomach, and he went too low and he got me in the quad. And I was black and blue from my ankle all the way up to my groin for a month. Ooh. But yeah, that's just that's just that's just me. Wow. So Ricky, uh, we had Ricky Steamboat on a couple of uh, weeks ago, and and we asked him what his who his dream opponent is that he never wrestled, and he said uh, he said Shawn Michaels, and and uh, you know you start to think about a Ricky Steamboat Shawn Michaels match, but you got to have a feud. With Shawn Michaels, so uh, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about that when you found out about it, and uh, and and how that was. Shawn was just awesome to work with. Again, one of those guys that I didn't have to think about. I didn't have to worry about. I just, you just go out and do. I, I, to be fair, a lot of the guys in the business are that way. A lot of the guys that I got to wrestle with didn't have to do a lot, a whole lot of uh, thinking, sculpting you kind of do it on autopilot. Um, but he was just so good. It's so light, so easy to work with. But I remember he sort of, at the time, like, I've always sold a little differently. Um, where, like, I've always tried to make it look like it was a real struggle, like a real fight. The old school method of standing in the corner with your face open, eating his face to your opponent while he punches you five times. And you just stay open for him. I just I've never liked that. I've never. I've always tried to. You know, if somebody punches me, I'm going to cover up. I'll open something right. else up for you, but like I cover my face. If you chop me, I'm not just going to stand there and let you chop me five times. I'm going to cover up and make you sort of earn another one. And I remember, like, Taker said to me one time. He said, "Hey, you keep keep doing stuff like that because it sets you apart. It's different. It feels different. It looks different. It's cool." Because, but there are going to be people that you're going to come up, come into contact with in the business, maybe over on raw that are not going to appreciate that. And that turned out to be the case with Sean. Like Sean thought I was being difficult with him. He would chop me and I would do the cover up thing. Like, you're not working with me. Uh, <laughs> so, but know. Taker likes it. <laughs> He's, you, know, and, and you know what? That was one of my missteps was like, well, Taker liked it, so you should like it too. Instead of adapting and changing to fit the way that Sean wanted me to do things a little bit, you know, I didn't have to lose right. who I was. But if I had just given a little bit, things might have gone differently. 
Right. Around this time, uh, you you took a little hiatus and filmed uh, a WWE movie behind enemy lines. Talk to me about the difference between wrestling in front of tens of thousands of people and doing a movie on a closed set. Um, it's just so much different. And I guess the big, the biggest difference for me between Hollywood and, you know, WWE wrestling or just TNA wrestling is that we in the business, we work. If, if we, we think nothing about doing an entire weekend and only getting like three or four hours of sleep every night and driving four or five hours every night. And you just, you just keep going. And, um, in the business, in, in the movie industry, it's like, I remember being on set one day and people were starting to scramble, you know, cause it was like, it was getting to be around quitting time or the time that they had scheduled us to quit. And we still had to film a bunch of stuff. And I remember like, I, pulled the director aside and I was like, Hey man, I don't know about all these other people, but I'm cool. We can just keep going. You know, let's, let's do this until we're done. And he said, that's not the way it works here. And there's the thing like in Hollywood, if you go over time, you end up having to pay, like if you go over 12 hours, you have to pay like five times the daily rate for each person that's involved. And it's just like a huge, huge no, no. So and that was the biggest difference that I saw was the, the treatment, how, how nicely you're treated. Um, you know, there's catering and people just kind of wait on you hand. But I remember like I asked somebody for an apple one day and then like every day for the rest of the filming, that guy had like a bag of apples in the cooler for me <laughs> every day. You know, that kind of stuff. You just, that's not, what we're accustomed to in the wrestling business. No. Spend for yourself in our business. But there's sure. like, yeah. And I can see how, how people would start to abuse that. You know, um, I, I always tried to remain humble and just know that like that could be taken away from me in a, in a heartbeat. And I always try to treat everybody on the set with respect. But I mean, I can see how some of those big name actors, I've just waited on hand and foot and everything they say, yes, sir, Mr. Cruz. And I they start to believe their own bullshit. No, absolutely. I, uh, I was a very, very, very small part of, uh, ready to rumble. And, but I got to go to, uh, man's Chinese theater, walk the red carpet. And one of, you know, I say other than my kids being born, one of the highlights of my life, but you know, same thing after party, whatever you want, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it just, it's a whole different environment where, uh, the world is your oyster. And, and I could see, you know, just for one night, I got to live it and you got to live it for a few months, I guess. But I, I could certainly, I agree with you. I could certainly see how, how that could, uh, inflate somebody's ego in ridiculous way. Uh, Ooh, when you yeah. got, you know, 20 people around you kissing your ass at all times. So, totally. So you came back and um, unfortunately you were released shortly thereafter that at the time uh, you had uh, blamed Randy Orton and John Cena for calling you reckless and saying they got you fired. You you say now that you look back and you're taking responsibility and trying to teach uh, others. Do you stand by, by what happened with Orton and Cena or does your, has your recollection changed now that, you know, you've grown as a person? I, I believe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I had piled up all the other straws on the camel's back before that. 
you know, with right. just the way that I had acted. Uh, I remember after the Benoit incident occurred, like I took to the, I took to one of the message boards or something like that, and I wrote this big long scathing thing about how wrestling had changed and we weren't all drug addicts and that kind of stuff. You know, I just opened my mouth and I should have just kept it shut. And, um, you know, there was so much other stuff that I had made so many missteps and that was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Randy and John thing. I don't, you know, I don't blame them. I blame me for putting putting myself in that position to be with. So, this is the question I've been most looking forward to asking you, just because I hear about it so much. Because as you know, I work with uh, uh, knobs and sags on the Legends of Wrestling, and uh, after you uh, were done with uh, WWF, WWE, uh, you went on the Hulkamania Australian tour, and and I, I I always hear stories about how that was like the last of the greatest parties of all time. Uh, you know, with Flair and the Nasty Boys and and Hulk and 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 that whole crew. Uh, any stories that you're allowed to tell without getting yourself or anybody else in trouble from that tour? Uh, nothing. It was just, it was just so much fun. And here's the thing: we were over there. No, there were no egos. There were you know nobody. Everybody was just there to have a good time and put on a good show. And um. I mean, the, the beautiful thing was, I think we did four different cities throughout Australia. And we would do a city, and then we would have two to three days off. Or we would, you know, we would do the city, and then we would travel to, we'd go from Melbourne to Perth. And then we would have two or three days in Perth, just hanging out by the pool and sightseeing and doing whatever. And then we would work on a show there, and then we would move on to Sydney. And we'd have two or three days in Sydney to just goof off. And, you know, I guess the thing in the business is that, like, you just keep going. I remember doing tours for WWE that would be, we did 19 shows in 21 days, 21 different cities, stuff like that. You know, it's just, you never get a chance to stop and smell the roses. I had been to Rome three or four times before I ever saw the Coliseum. Because it was just, you're in, you're out. You see the inside of a bus, you see the inside of a hotel room, you see the inside of the arena, and you're back on a plane. Um, so it was just I nice like to, to throw I, I, I like to throw in the inside of a bar, but other than that, you're spot on. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. But sometimes, like, even if we would like to see the inside of a bar, you couldn't because you only had so much time. But I, I will say that a lot of times we sacrifice sleep for the sake of a good party, you know, like say we went out in uh, Milan or whatever. Um, yeah, but you know, I just remember, um, I don't know. I have this, I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but Brutus, Brutus would wear a tea back to the pool every day, like a thong, you know, thong underwear, like a thong bikini. We're all wearing trunks. <laughs> like Brutus, he didn't give a shit. <laughs> he was just standing there in his thong. And I remember one time he standing about standing the the shallow end of the pool with a drink in his hand and music is bumping and you look around and it's like Hogan and Flair and Umaga and Rikishi and you know all these guys and I remember looking over seeing uh Brutus's uh 
brain was hanging out of his shorts. <laughs> and somebody said, you know, look at him. Just look at him. <laughs> then finally somebody smartened him up. Hey, man, your brain's hanging out. And he just looked out, readjusted, put it back in, and went about his business. It was just funny. There was just no, like I said, no egos whatsoever. It's just so much fun. Yeah, that is fun when you get, I've had opportunities to be on tours like that. And it's such a difference uh, from, you know, the usual, you know, go into the city, go out of the city. You know, uh, you know, when I, when I went with the WCW, it was a lot different than uh, stuff that I got to do with like, say, World Wrestling All-Stars and uh, the pressure's just off you. So I, I understand. Uh, but and Nasty you know, like, Boys still I, talk. No, I was going to say, like, I absolutely love the Nasty Boys. Like, they're some of my favorite people on earth. And they're crazy. Like, Nobs is crazy, but crazy in a good way. You know, um, he's just, he really, uh, he's been good to me my entire career. And I've known him for about my entire career. Because when I went to train with Brad Rangan way back in the day, Nobs and Sags were there. And they sort of, you know, helped me out and they always sort of were super nice to me and gave me a lot of good pointers and, and then always remembered it from that point on. I mean, I would bump into them from time to time and they'd be like, yeah, I remember you. Sags, uh, Sags and I, Nobs and Sags and I, are, I would consider them to be good friends of mine. Yeah, they're fun guys for sure. So you go to TNA. Uh, any, you know, obviously the, the building's smaller, you're on a soundstage. Uh, but but other than the obvious, uh, any differences between TNA and WWE that stood out to you? So like, the huge differences to me were the the way that things were handled behind the scenes. I mean, I remember that you know, WWE was everything had like a specific set schedule, and you need to be here, you need to be there. They, like if you did call-ins for radio shows, you didn't call in; they called you. Like. Somebody from the office would call and then put you in the three-way with the radio stations. And then I remember they would introduce us. They would say like, you know, Hey, John from WKRP in Cincinnati, you're talking to WWE superstar, Mr. Kennedy. And they would introduce it. And I remember like going to TNA, I would do appearances where they would just be like, yeah, just show up at the, and you just pull up in your rental car and people are waiting there. Um, or you would call a radio station on your own. I just thought I was just shocked by the difference in the presentation, I guess, of the superstars. There was no sort of, uh, like I said, we would show up sometimes to these appearances with a van full of guys. It would be like JB driving us in a van. We'd pull up and fans are standing right there. It was just kind of weird. It was kind of strange. But the one thing that I, that I appreciated the most was how laid back everything was at TNA. For the, the, the entirety of the time that I was there, there were no egos. There was never a sense of like walking on eggshells. WWE guys are walking on eggshells all the time. Or they were when I was there. Just, everybody's worried that tomorrow could be the last day. I could get fired. And TNA, it just, you didn't have that sense. I remember, um, I had spoken to a, a friend of mine who was talking about coming into coming into TNA as a, as a writer, as a creative person. And uh, they said something to Dixie, like, hey, this guy needs to go, this guy needs to go, this guy needs to go. 
and it was just from a sheer sense of like um, he felt that they had sort of they weren't they weren't adding anything to the company anymore. Not that they were bad people, that they weren't good performers, but they just weren't adding anything to the company at that particular time. And he said they needed to go. And Dixie's response was, "None of them have done anything to deserve to be fired," which was a great you know. It was very cool because in, in WWE, it's just like, what have you been for me lately? If you're not, if you're not on top of things at WWE, they're going to fire you. Where at TNA, it was like, she kept people around because they were good employees. And they were good people. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I lived it for five years. Uh, yeah. You know, the best, the be- I think, you know, I think uh, the best, that I could compare it to is WWE is run like a corporation and TNA was is run like a wrestling, you know, wrestling company. If, if that makes any sense. Yep. And so it's a family, it's more of a family run operation. It's sort of a absolutely grassroots, like pull up our bootstraps and, and do this together. And I remember things weren't going so well. There were several, several times where like people weren't getting paid on time. Um, it was just sort of, we weren't getting the ratings that we thought we should have. And we would always get those rah-rah speeches. Every few months, Dixie would pull us together and give us a rah-rah speech. And I remember like being in those meetings and leaving and going, yeah, let's, that's what I remember at one point she asked me to take a, when John Gabor came in, he asked me to take a considerable haircut, like half my pay. And he just, you know, the way that he said it to me was this, this company is hemorrhaging money. We're not going to be around. Right. We keep paying these big contracts and stuff like that. I'm asking you to do this. Please help us out. And he said, you know, when, when things get better, I promise you, you'll, you know, I'll, I'll bump you back up. And then I talked to Eric Bischoff about it. And Eric was like, you know, this is a great company. And I think that, it might be worth your while to do it because I think that we can turn this around. And that's what we always felt like we can turn this around. We can make this better. But then the frustration would be going into a place like Baltimore, Maryland at a baseball stadium that held 10,000 people. And there were like 162 fans in attendance. And it was like, when you looked at the way TNA was advertising Twitter and Facebook, that was it. Like, we would go into towns and it would say, we go to the gym and there would be tons of wrestling fans. Or we go to a restaurant, wrestling fans, what are you guys doing in town? We have a wrestling show right down the road. Oh, I had no idea. That happened so often. Yeah, they just didn't have the resources to be what they wanted to be back then. I think they've, they, I think they've realized now uh, as Impact Wrestling that that they, you know they they are what they are and they're sort of embracing it in in my opinion I don't know if you follow it at all but they just didn't have the resources back in the day they had the talent uh, they just but didn't they, have the resources have, to make it happen. But I believe they did have the resources because they they just allocated it in talent entirely. Because there was at one time I looked at the roster when I first got there it was amazing the, the, the talent the sheer talent they had on that. On that roster, I mean, it was like Hogan, Blair, um, Dane, Kurt Angle, Jeff Hardy, Matt Hardy, me. Um, 
it was just like name, 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 all these people's name value. Booker T, um, the Dudleys, like all these names. And I think that they were just spending all of their money on, on talent and none on advertising. Oh, that's what I said. When I say resources, I didn't mean the talent, the talent. I was, I was looking at some of the feuds that you had and the guys, you know, the AJs and, and stings. And, and like you said, bully Ray and, and Bobby Roode and, and the talent was amazing. But, but like you said, they, they, they spent so much money on talent because Dixie was so loyal. They didn't have the PR department to be able to promote a show in Baltimore. Right. They didn't have the funds to be able to go on Monday night raw locally and advertise, uh, uh, you know, the, those sort of things. So the talent was, sure. was off the charts. Um, but I think the, when I said resources, I'm, I think I was talking about promotional resources. Uh, I got but, you. Um, I got you. But uh, so aces and eights uh, was something that you were a part of. Um, well, I had, well, we talked to Wes Briscoe about a month ago, and he was disappointed that they pulled the plug. It sort of was a modern day NWO gang mentality, pr- totally presented a different way. What were your thoughts on it? And uh, do you agree with Wes that it could have been something that they could have, uh, you know, made last a lot longer if they wanted to? I remember at the time when they pitched him, Eric pitched it to me. This was Eric Bischoff's idea as a baby. And I remember when he pitched the idea of putting me in it, I thought, Ugh, I, you know, nothing about Ken Anderson says biker. I don't think, you know, <laughs> but That's, that is true. At it, but I looked at it as a challenge to do something different to sort of get outside my comfort zone. And I had fun with it. I really did. And the group of guys that we were with, I mean, it was almost like, you know, not in a bad way. We weren't like clicky and exclusive or anything like that, but like we were pretty tight backstage. So it was sort of like anybody who was in that, you know, motorcycle gang, aces and eights, we were, we were friendly backstage when, when the cameras weren't rolling. Um, but I, I just, I had a ton of fun with it. There were some frustrations as far as like, I felt we could have gotten a ton more mileage out of the prospect, you know, like in a real biker gang, if you, if you, David Penzer decide that you want to be in a biker gang, you have to go through this <laughs> huge, this huge process of prospecting of a year where they treat you like garbage and you prove yourself you know, before you get patched in. And in, in Aces and Aces, it's like, Hey, Ken Anderson wants to be a part of the gang. Okay, give him a cut. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm in tomorrow. Patched in. And just I felt like we could have explored. There's there's so much creatively that could have been done. It was sort of hot shotted a little bit. Um, one of the things like that occurred to me after was that for a biker gang, I think we were seeing with motorcycles once. <laughs> like, oh jeez. You know, you know, there were never any backstage segments where that involved us riding motorcycles. Um, but yeah, it, the plug was pulled on it. I think it was doing really well. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, the Boric came in and did not like the idea. And he was given control and he was given the reins. So he pulled the plug on it. And I didn't realize that he was the one who uh, who pulled the plug on that. That's a shame. I enjoyed it. Uh, 
it was some, something totally different. And, uh, you know, a lot of times in this business, as you know, you know, totally different. Look at the uh, broken Matt Hardy, whether you like that or you hate it. Uh, you know, it was it was totally different. And I think I not on the it. same. Play- <laughs> I, 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 absolutely, I absolutely love it. And I remember the first the first time I saw it, I was like, come on, buddy. What are you doing? What are you doing, Matt? And, and then I, you know. The thing about entertaining, about entertainment, is that we've got different, different strokes for different folks, man. Like it's Baskin Robbins ice cream. There's something for everyone, and right. I just loved how how different it was. It just like they went completely outside the box and outside the comfort zone of wrestling, and just I, I love it. I love the fact that they they did it, and I think they're still doing it right now, right? In WWE. Yeah, him and um, Bray, him and Bray Wyatt are doing yeah. it, I believe. Yep, it's just so uh, entertaining. So uh, I, I saw uh, that you've done some real ring announcing for uh, Top Rank Boxing. Tell me about how you got involved in that, and if you, uh, if you're going to do any more in your future. I'm glad you weren't around when uh, when when I was in WCW because you did a great job. And I'm not just kissing your ass. I'm, I'm being serious. Thank you, Lonnie. Samoa Joe actually reached out to me and said that his agent wanted to get in touch with me. And his agent um, works a lot with Top Rank Boxing. And I guess he and the president of the company had been sitting around one night and they were talking about how how the face of the company, how they wanted it to sort of change and adapt to the times. And they wanted to put some fresh faces out there. And, uh, he, having been a wrestling fan, was like, I bet Ken Anderson would be good at this. And so he reached out to me and just asked me if I would be willing to go in and, and give it a shot. And it seemed to go well. Um, and it's still, still sort of like one of those things that we're still in contact with each other about it. But, you know, in the entertainment industry, things take forever to materialize. But then when they do materialize, things happen quickly overnight. Yeah, they want you there yesterday. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Was well, how, how was it? You know, actually being the ring announcer as opposed to just somebody, you know, a heel uh, or an asshole playing, you know, a wrestler who's ring announcing for himself. You know, I was I was way more stressed out than I've been in the last <laughs> ten or fifteen years because it was something completely different that I, I just wasn't used to doing. I was used to doing myself, but I wanted to make sure, you know, doing my own introduction, but I wanted to make sure that like, I didn't screw something up or make a call wrong, wrong call. And, you know, like boxing fans, like football fans, if somebody screws up in football, like makes the wrong call, everybody jumps, jumps on you. And I didn't want to do that. And so I sat down with, uh, one of the other ring announcers. He just helped me out tremendously, made sure that I had all the right verbiage and, I'm not a huge boxing fan. I mean, I've watched it here and there. I've, the only time I've ever watched boxing in my life was when there was a major fight. Right. You know, like Holyfield versus Tyson, stuff like that. Like the, uh, the, the, recent, the most recent one, the big fight between uh, Conor McGregor and um, Mayweather. Mayweather. You know what I mean? That's the last one but I've like, seen. Yeah, but I'll tell you what. I gained a newfound respect for that business and that sport being sitting ringside the entire time. They, 
beat the shit out of each other. Like they hit each other <laughs> so hard and so often. I was just blown away. Sort of like the fun. CM Punk match. Sort of like the recent CM Punk match. Did you get to see that at all? I did not. I did not. But um, I, I don't really know. I heard people were saying that he, they thought that he won the first round. And, uh, I, I don't know. What, what did it end up happening in that? Oh, they both gassed out in the in the second round, really. Uh, and then he just uh, he just got the worst of the pounding. He might have won the first round. Uh, he just looked like. Uh, did you see a picture of him after his first fight where it looked like his ear and the side of his face exploded? Yes. This one looked like his whole head had exploded. It wasn't a good look. God bless him. Right. I don't know CM Punk. God bless him. You know he's. You know, thirty-nine-year-old guy trying to go in there doing something he's never done before. I, I give him credit. I, you know, uh, uh, a lot I, of people wouldn't do that. I love him. I love Punk. Um, I always, I, I didn't always get along, but like, uh, we got to. He got to TNA, or, or I'm sorry, he got to OVW right after I got pulled up on the road, and Paul Heyman took him obviously, and so Paul sort of moved our situation over and i remember you know i didn't like him and i we went out to eat and paul kept saying like no he's a good guy it's just like you know because punk just have a certain attitude about him that kind of if you don't know him if you don't you got to warm up to him he's got to warm up to you and uh paul sort of broke that ice between us and we became good friends and i i have nothing but respect for the guy and i'll tell you what like i have respect for the, for the fact that punk Saved his money when he was in the WWE. Didn't spend it. Saved it and worked his butt off to get to put himself in a position where he had power over that company and just say like, right. you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And at which point, you know, he had the ball completely in his court and Vince said, okay, whatever you want, I'll do it. Just, just keep you around. And, you know, we know how that worked out. Um, but the fact that he took on the cor- the, cor- the corporation and won, um, I have a lot of respect for him. You think and, he and ever goes that, back? Um, I do. I do. I do think uh, after the Ultimate Warrior went back, um, after Sable went back, after Jeff Jarrett just got inducted into the Hall of Fame, I think... Uh, I, I never say never in this business, and I, I I would say that at some point throughout history, Punk will go back. I don't know if it'll be in a wrestling role or if it'll just be to get inducted into the Hall of Fame or something like that. But I, I do believe that he'll be back someday. I mean, whoever thought that Ultimate yeah. Warrior would go back to the company? Oh no, the whole thing's crazy. If you'd have told me a year ago Jeff Jarrett was going in the WWE Hall of Fame, I'd have bet my house. And lost it. So, uh, yep. and nothing yep. against Jeff. Jeff is a mentor to me and a good friend. But, uh, and, and I, yep. we had Jeff on this, uh, this, this podcast right after it was announced. And, uh, he was, he was as shocked as anybody. So, uh, you know, I remember, I remember talking to Jeff after the last night show when they basically fired him on, on live television. And, you know, uh, so, you know, you, you, you never say never. So, and I, and, and I hope he does go back, CM Punk, at least to go into the Hall of Fame. Uh, yep. Yep. So, uh, so I appreciate your time. Um, before we promote what you're doing now, uh, I noticed when I was uh, uh, doing a little research on this, 
that you seem to be a family feud guru. You've been on, I think, three weeks of family feud, two in WWE Ten. and one in TNA. Ten? Ten weeks. Ten weeks. Holy <laughs> Yeah. So tell me about so, family. Tell me, you know, I've watched Family Feud on and off my own life. You know, people make fun of good answer, you know, stupid answers, and and but but yeah. how is it being on Family Feud? It was awesome. Um, the first time was with WWE, and they they taped five episodes at a time. I never knew this until we were on it. But they, you know, they taped. I think each episode is probably twenty two minutes, like any other half hour show. Right. Um, and. You know, you do the show and then you go and you change clothes and then you come back out and you do another episode. You do five episodes in one day. And then that same thing happened right when I first got to TNA. I mean, it was, we were doing it, we were shooting it on one of the sound stages at Universal Studios. So I didn't have to go anywhere. It was like, I, I think I went in the day early to do it. Right. But I had so much fun. And I'll tell you what, and one of the, my favorite rabbit holes to get sucked into right now is going on YouTube and watching Steve Harvey clips, whether it be from his talk show or from family food. Like he is one of the funniest human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And just always on, always funny. It was just, it was just really cool. Was, yeah, I heard he goes on. I heard he goes on like 10, 12, 15 minutes comedy spots in the middle of the show that get cut out that are just for the studio audience. Somebody said something. Um, I think Jay Lethal had a, just a terrible answer. And Steve, like, took a bump on the, on the ground and just, like, laid it for <laughs> five minutes. And everybody was laughing. Or he'd go on these... Yeah, obviously, they edited it out for TV, but, like, he was just... Stop. Somebody gives him terrible answer he would just stop and go off on on that person for a while and, you know and, and it's done in so he's he's ribbing them but like it's not biting you idiot nothing like that you know it's like just he's very good at doing what he does that's okay. awesome uh thank you for your time ken great stuff and um i know that you have a school i know you're getting ready to go uh to uh, teach a class i know that what 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 you're doing is 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 great stuff because um I don't know if you even know the story you were out of the country but we had a uh, a legends of wrestling show in uh Detroit Michigan a few months ago and uh some of your some some of your uh uh students had come up and uh they didn't end up weren't they they ended up they weren't going to work and then uh the the autograph portion was going late so we needed to do a pre-match match and like we just put them in a tag team match with like about five minutes notice, and everybody backstage was like really worried because you know they were green and you know students, and they went out there had a hell of a match. Uh, so and everybody was shocked, you know. So so kudos to whatever you guys are doing. Uh, those guys did a great job at at the last minute. I've seen guys who've been in the business fifteen years who can't go out there and did, do what those guys did. So so tell me a little bit about your school. I know you're doing good stuff, like I said. That makes me really, really happy. I'm glad, you know, thank you for saying that because I'm really proud of all those guys. I'm proud of all my students. Um, and I've got students that are super gifted athletes. And then I've got students who are not so gifted in that department, but they're gifted in their, in their passion. Like I've got people that just keep, keep trying and they keep getting better. And we have, 
a really positive environment where you know people are encouraged to jump jump outside of their comfort zone to do things that they're not comfortable doing. There's no judgment from people. You know, we're all we're all in this together, kind of thing. And um, yeah, I, I know that it, it, for me, I know that that Legends of Wrestling show was probably the biggest thing that both guys have ever been a part of. You know, my students that, that ended up being fortunate enough to work on that show. And for me to be able to sort of facilitate that in some way, like knobs reached out to me and said, Hey, I need four guys. And I sent him four guys and he ended up here that they did well um, in, on that stage. And, you know, like there were some big names in the locker room and there were uh, quite a few people in attendance from what I, what I gathered from the pictures. Yeah, it was, and, it was pretty sold out. It was uh, uh, 4,000 people. I want to say, uh, yeah. and yeah, and like I said, you know, they, they went out there on five minutes notice and put a match together and uh, did a hell of a job. These are guys that, that, you know, I train five nights a week, Monday through Friday, 7 PM classes, seven, seven to 9 PM. And then from nine to 11, I let them do sort of an open gym format where they can practice the stuff that I just taught them. They can watch tapes. They can sit and chit chat about the business. Um, and just do stuff to get better. And then, then the, you know, outside of that, I also open the school up to people that want to come in early and I open it up to sometimes we do shows on a weekend and we, we've gotten together and watched pay-per-views before. Um, and the thing is that these students aren't just happy, you know, doing what they're doing there. I feel like I'm living vicariously through them because it's the way that I was when I first spoke into the business, because the only thing was difference was I didn't have any of the connection. I didn't know. I didn't have somebody that had made it to the dance telling me like, don't do this, do this, do it this way. Here's why you do this stuff. I was just sort of figuring it out on my own. And we were just floundering our, our way along. So that's why I opened up the wrestling school because I wanted to make sure that I was able to give back to wrestling in a way that, you know, like I said, I want to teach them the right way to do things so that they don't have to make mistakes, the same mistakes along the way. And we run it. That's awesome. It was, it was sort of based loosely. I don't have anywhere near the budget that they have, but we looked at like what NXT was doing. It's just a wrestling factory. And I, you know, everything wrestling under one roof. And so I offer you know, personal training for my students, nutrition advice. Um, we do promo work, character development. I help them get gear, um, try to help them get booked when they're ready to, to go out into the world and do their own thing. I mean, these are all things that I, I try to, you know, at the very least, show them how do, how do I present myself as a professional wrestler to potential bookers. You know, what do I send on the tape? I remember sending tapes tape after tape after tape after tape. And I, I just realized certain things about that process along the way. And hopefully I'm able to, you know, cut out, cut some corners for those guys. Oh, I was just going to ask uh, if somebody's interested in finding out more about your school, uh, how did they, how did they take a look? Do you have a website or Twitter? The Academy pro wrestling.com. Uh, you can send us an email at the Academy pro wrestling at gmail.com. You can call or text 
If you want to, you can set up a consultation. We have a virtual tour on our website. You can actually see the facility. Our Twitter is the Academy SOPW. We're also on Instagram at uh, the Academy Pro Wrestling. And we have the Academy School of Professional Wrestling on Facebook. So you're covered in the social media world. I love it. Uh, no, you know, it's amazing. You go back and you look at your career. Uh, and, and as you know, you've wrestled the who's who of the of the last really two generations. You know, you got the end of The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, uh, uh, Batista generation. And then, you know, you got to work with, uh, especially in TNA with, you know, the AJ Styles and the Bobby Roods and, 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 uh, you know, Samoa Joe's, so, and then Sting to boot. So, yeah, yeah it's really, really uh, quite amazing to see. It's, it's really a who's who of the last 30 years. So, uh, a lot to be proud of, Ken. We are very honored that you took the, the time out to do this, and, uh, and we'll make sure that, uh, uh, we let people know how to get in touch with you if they want to learn more. But like I said, I could, uh, I could say as a testimonial that what you're doing is, uh, is doing great because those kids, really shined in a, in a, in a crappy situation. I'd be crapping my pants, quite frankly. So thank you for coming on, Ken. And uh, yeah, exactly. Thank you for coming on. And uh, I was actually crapping my pants, hoping they did good. And they, I was, uh, it was, it was great. So, um, so kudos and uh, good luck to you. And hopefully we see you down the road, uh, maybe at one of these events, but I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Again, want to thank Mr. Ken Anderson for City Ringside with us. Uh, really uh, have a lot of respect for what he's doing, passing on the the mistakes that he's made and the challenges that he's had in a crazy business uh, to a group of people uh, that he obviously cares a lot about and, like I said, does a great job with. So I thank him for his time and uh, his story, and we're going to bring you more stories each and every week here on City Ringside. I got a whole uh, list that I made uh, that I'm aiming to get all crossed off by the end of the summer. So we're working on it, and uh, we appreciate you sticking with us as we get close to one year of City Ringside. Again, be sure to uh, hit me up on Twitter, at David Penzer, at Penzer Ringside, David Penzer at RadioInfluence.com if you're not a social media guy, and... Uh, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends and neighbors. Thank you so much. Appreciate the indulgence in the opening segment. Hope that it helps somebody. If you know somebody that you think it may help, turn them on to it. I don't care if they subscribe. <laughs> if it's just that part helps them, that's great. They don't need to. If they're not wrestling fans, it's cool. Uh, until next time, I'm David Penzer, City Ringside. Take care, guys. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Beyond the Badge with Vincent Hill Quick Fix on Radio Influence. There was a Charlotte, North Carolina police officer, Officer Andrew Spotswood. Uh, he recently encountered an elderly uh, man that was a veteran uh, his wallet was stolen by a woman uh, so of course he lost his money his debit card his ID and his bus pass which basically left him immobile so officer Andrew Spotswood saw this and he actually uh, took the guy to 
the DMV for a new ID. He took him to the bank to get a new debit card, and then he got him a new bus pass. But, of course, he still had no money. So the last thing that this officer did was he took the man who's a veteran to get a meal on the officer. I think this officer just has compassion, just like many police officers have compassion for the people they serve. They just get a bad rap in the mainstream media. Beyond the Badge with Vincent Hill can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and RadioInfluence.com.